Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. So how is your, um, how's your 2017 going so far? Hey, it's evaporating. Like, like uh, I don't know, teardrops in a petri dish. It is just, it could be the oppressive Australian heat, but it's just disappearing. But it's, it's great. So far, so good. I like it. Yeah. I feel like 2017 had a lot of pressure on it, though. So, but it's so far, so, so good. I think she's behaving well. Do you think that was self-inflicted pressure or is this because of the uh, uh, preconceived horrors? Or not preconceived, but uh, the, the kind of media frenzy was, of horrors that was uh, 2016. I think it was just that 2017 just felt like an endless Oscars package of people who died, you know? <laughs> like, 2016. Kind of went, hey, guys. Yeah, Marina, uh, Marina, Mariah Carey's uh, hero is only three and a half minutes long. You guys need to stop dying. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to have to do a mashup. <laughs> and she had to lip sync. Oh, wasn't that great? Mm. Oh, it was so great. The last thing God to die of 2016 it. was her career. Oh, I th- I'd say it, was, it had been gone for a long time. But I don't know. It's just so great to see people be People does people have to go through these horrendous human experiences in front of thousands of people? It's so good, mm. so good. Yeah, <laughs> big fragile egos. I don't mean breaking. it in like a, I don't, I don't mean it in like a Schadenfreude kind of a way. I don't mean like laughing at the misfortune of others. It's not it, for me. It wasn't funny. It was just like, yeah, that's what happens. That's that's all it takes is <laughs> someone to just like switch a button or. It's great. And the cards come tumbling down. Indeed. Indeed they do. I mean, the idea that it was going to actually, the performance itself was going to be any better, even if she could hear herself, like that that in itself is a ridiculous theory. <laughs> I think it was great. <laughs> We're all spared. Welcome to the latest instalment of The Chat Cave. Welcome to Coming Up Next with Alastair Marks, brought to you from the far north of England, all the way up in Whitby, where today I had one of the best servings of fish and chips that I've ever had before I was attacked uh, by a seagull and then, uh, then ran home to edit and upload this week's podcast. My guest this week is a tremendous comedian, writer and performer, You may know her from Kinney. You may also have seen her as part of the comedy duo Girls Uninterrupted. She got her start opposite Meryl Streep in A Cry in the Dark, being number episode 80 of Coming Up Next, Nicolette Minster. Now, before we crack on with this week's interview, I'd love to take a moment to thank everyone who tunes into the show. Whether you're a regular listener slash subscriber or this happens to be the first time you've tuned in, And if this does happen to be the first time you've tuned in, if this is your first foray into this podcasting madness, go to uh, comingupnext.com.au to find the full back catalogue of uh, of episodes with some of the world's top creatives. You'll also find links to iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can subscribe, rate and review the show. You do that, and I'll keep the rambles rolling, starting with episode number 80, my interview with girl uninterrupted Nicolette Minster. You mentioned just before we started that 2017 had actually been uh, quite a busy year for you so far. I mean, we're only, you know, not quite a month in, um, but, you know, you uh, with Late Night Films, who have also uh, graced Mm. my lovely microphones, um, have been doing some amazing stuff sort of in the, you know, I mean, always, but in the second half of last year, kind of bleeding into the start of this year. Um, mm. You guys are working on some pretty amazing projects at the moment. Yeah, we are. We've got lots of stuff in development, which is, oh, it's a funny thing to have to explain to people who don't um, sort of dally in the world of 
media and certainly narrative media. Um, but it, and there are always those projects that are kind of in like an incubation for just the longest time. And then, and then, and then all of a sudden they kind of, I don't know, get some clout behind them and they become a bit of a reality, which is delightful. Um, so we've been working on a, a project now for almost a year, which in the scheme of things doesn't isn't probably a particularly long time, but it's really ramped up in regards to um, the reality of becoming an actual thing. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's... And it's great. I've been working with Late Night now for maybe, I suppose, two and a, two and a bit years, maybe two and a half years. And they were certainly um, the first, my first um, attempt at being a screenwriter or working as a screenwriter. And um, I've had a couple of projects that we've we've made, but this has certainly been the biggest one. Um, and we're playing with, you know, an imaginary world that we get to create, and we're playing in the kids. TV realm, and um, and it's it's fascinating. I'm learning a stupid amount, um, and you know, I'm just I'm also spending a lot of time with myself. <laughs> it's a dreadfully lonely, <laughs> lonely existence. Mm. Existence of a screenwriter. Um, yeah, myself and all the weird and wonderful voices inside my head that seem to be pouring out onto the page. Now, something I. Uh... Something that I really enjoy about doing this podcast is that I get to research um, people oh, who are in my shit. life, <laughs> who who I may have known for a few years. Um, oh. I don't mean that in a kind of creepy, stalkery way. <laughs> Sounds super intrusive. I mean, it is it is quite intrusive, um, and generally it ends up with me knowing people's bank details. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but um, one thing that I didn't actually know about you uh, is that uh, the the space of kids' television, or perhaps better put, child acting, is uh, something yeah. that is quite close Chatting. to your uh, to your home? Yeah, I started. Um, my both my mum and dad work in TV, or they did work in TV. What did they do in TV? Um, so my mum was a script writer and story producer, and my dad. Uh, was and still is actually a broadcast engineer. So for many years, I just thought my dad was a professional VCR tuner. Like he was the <laughs> only person I knew who could tune the television through the VCR so you could record it. I don't know if you ever remember that struggle yep. of, oh, my God, when television was analog and you had to tune your television through your VCR in order just to record things. I remember. And you would have that. Yeah, do you remember having to hit pause? I don't know, were you one of those kids who would hit pause when the ads came on and then you would have to remember to take pause off? Yep, and when you didn't, it was the worst thing You didn't even have to make quarters of a film. Yep. Oh, it was the worst. It's kind of like Kevin gets left behind and then all of a sudden uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are in his house falling through traps. And that's then the film. What a over. nightmare! That is the stuff of nightmares. Yep. Somewhere along the line, lines, my mum and dad got me an agent, really, and I think I was only about three at the time. So, and they say to me, "Oh, it was definitely something you wanted to do. Like it was clear that you were a performer." I was like, "I was three. <laughs> was there a meal on offer? Because I'm pretty sure I was only performing for food, which is incidentally still." I was going to say that the motivation yeah. behind my entire career. <laughs> Will this experience feed me? And they, yeah, anyway, they, they got me involved with that. And I guess I must have been okay. Although, to be fair, at that age, I think you just have to look all right and not cry at frequent intervals and you get the job. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so I did a bit of child acting, but never, it was never like. I had like a couple of appearances on Neighbours and a couple of ABC series, but I was never like a, se- a series regular. So it was always, I, it was never something where it was kind of taking over my childhood or, you know, I don't, I don't remember having to miss much school in regard, in, like in order to have to do it. I just remember that I had a bank account and, and then occasionally would go off and do 
a geek. Although my first act, actual acting job was with Meryl Streep. So, what? go on. Yeah. So, uh, it, which is ri- ri- absolutely ridiculous because it is a, it is a kiss of death because <laughs> <laughs> not like my career. There is no way I can improve upon that. So everything since then was absolutely going to be downhill, <laughs> but it was in um, it was in Evil Angels. So and I do I do still get people asking me about that. And I was and I just pretend as if I can remember. Do you remember what that was like? <laughs> well, what do people oh, do people generally ask you? Yeah, they go. Oh, do you remember it? Do you remember her? And I can't. And I think because people ask me that so frequently throughout my life that. I've either done a really good job of pretending as if I can remember, so I've just formulated a memory, or I can actually remember. And if I can actually remember, I, I do have like one single memory of the experience. But I think it was just because there was there was so much pressure from people around me to be like, "Don't forget this. Like this is a big deal." Mm. Whereas I was like, "Where's the food?" So, <laughs> <laughs> Which way to craft services? Exactly, exactly right. Do you remember on that kind of note, you mentioned that your parents um, said that you were clearly a performer at a, yeah. at the, the ripe age of three. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you remember the first uh, performance that you did or the first time that you might have entertained your family that maybe made them think that? No, I don't. I certainly don't remember what I did the first, what what my initial, what the origin story is, let's say. But I do have memories of when my parents had people around for dinner because I do have a half-sister but she didn't live with us. So I effectively grew up as an only child. And I do have memories of when mum and dad would have people around for dinner. I would pull out the mini tramp trampoline yeah. not just a small, a small not just a small, a small prostitute homeless, homeless alcoholic <laughs> um, pull out the mini tramp hand my dad one of those those torches that required a nine volt battery some of those big like torches you would use in emergency throw on belinda carlisle switch off the lights and i would just bop i would literally bop on the mini tramp whilst i insisted my dad circle the light around the room as if it was a floodlight. Thank goodness none of their friends were epileptic, otherwise it would have resulted in a seizure. And I would just bop along to Belinda Carlisle and that was like the, the either the pre-dinner or I would be the, the entertainment in between the main course and dessert and then I'd just take myself off to bed. So I think that potentially... I haven't really fully realised that as the performance art that it was. Right, yeah, um, yeah. But I'm confident I've got a long career ahead of me, so there's yeah. still time. Yeah, I mean, you could give birth to a whole new genre of um, mm. lip-sync comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think RuPaul's Drag Race is doing a pretty good job of it, but right. <laughs> not enough seizures. <laughs> So you were working on na- you know things like neighbors and um uh opposite um up and coming stars like Meryl Streep. Yes. <laughs> At what point My apprentice we'll call it. Your apprentice, yeah. I mean, I'm sure yeah. that you taught her a lot about um mm-hmm. how one mm-hmm. can best use a mini tramp to their benefit um to to get what they want. It's not just for toning. No, no. Um, so at what point did you kind of uh, not, you know, not throw in the towel, but kind of hang up the those those boots, as it were, for the interim period to come back to at a later point in your life? Oh, basically, oh, this is a bit like that, the bit of the Bible that's missing. It's like baby Jesus was born and then he came back and he was a carpenter and what did he do in mm. between? Is that, yeah. is that kind of, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I just had a, had a childhood. I don't think I was, I don't think I was really, I don't think I was one of those kids who stepped onto set and went, I can't exist 
anywhere outside of this realm and I found my tribe and I want to grow up in front of the nation and I just want to play pretend all the time. Like that wasn't, that was, for me, I feel like acting um, has always been something that I've enjoyed doing and obviously I've definitely pursued it and continue to do so. But I don't feel like it's, I don't know, I don't, I've never felt like it's the only thing I want to do with my life and potentially the only thing I can do. And I must have experienced that at a young age. I wasn't pushing um, to be growing up on set and having that experience. And in the interim, I think I just wanted to give myself to, especially during high school, just wanted to give myself the opportunity to see what else I could do and what else was was there. And I kind of really enjoyed going to school, which I know most people don't most people kind of talk about having a terrible high school experience and maybe I was just really naive or perhaps I was just really blessed and fortunate that I I liked being in that environment I felt very safe there and I think I just wanted to be exposed to different subjects and and learn stuff that wasn't um that you know it's a big sacrifice I know for a lot of those kids who kind of stay in that entertainment world um, and I certainly was never going to be pushing my folks to like drag me across to LA. What was the? So yeah, so maybe that happened. <laughs> <laughs> what were what were some of the subjects that you enjoyed at school? Oh, um, I loved science until it until it got until you had to specialize. I like. Do you know what? I, like, I feel that way about most things in life. <laughs> I, I really love. You like gen- things like, generally. Yes, I just liked having a general general awareness of science. But then when it kind of became, well, it's either biology or chemistry, I was like, oh, that is not fun for me to have to just pick one. Um, I would like to be a master of all of those, please. <laughs> um, but I never really could be. Oh, yeah, I really, loved, I really loved science. I had a really great science teacher, I remember, in year eight. And it was the first time that I felt like I, ne- I never really felt like much of an academic and I struggled with maths and I never understood the point of that. And um, I remember I had a really great science teacher in year eight and I made a point of sitting right up the front in every class and I just absolutely aced it and I loved it. I did, um, I did year 12 woodwork when I was in year 11. I think it was called Materials and Technology. So I, I mean, it sounds it's sounding a lot like, a lot like the the Bible origin story. I was yeah. I was a carpenter. I, I emerged as a, as a fifteen year old carpenter. I loved it. It was so fun. I loved all those hands on subjects that I don't know that just felt literally felt tangible. Um, I tried to like politics and I didn't understand it. But I did give it a red hot raz. Mm, I mean, come back to it one day. Well, it's safe to say that most of the world doesn't really understand uh, what's going on in politics at the moment. Yeah, Um, it must be a very odd um, subject to teach because you kind of go through the basics of how things should work, and but then as but then, I mean, fundamentally, nothing does. Like it's a flawed system. Although I do like the West Wing, um, and that has taught me a lot. When did you discover that writing was your jam? And by jam, I mean yeah. like the thing that you enjoy doing, not like that you considered writing to be some sort of condiment. I think, like most things in life, the the you know the things that you should be doing or the things the path that you're supposed to be on, there was never one specific time. I think it was something that kept. I kept coming back to and I have memories of writing quite young um, so I have memories of writing stories as an 11 year old and kind of being told to keep it up and being, being encouraged to keep working at it um, but I suppose it for me, it almost took me longer to have the confidence to think that it was something that I could do and that people would be interested in reading. Um, I think that that probably only came through comedy. Um, 
even though I'd had other work previously that I'd written and I'd had either performed or shot. Um, but I, I never went down that path of I should go and study creative literature or I should um, or that I could make a career out of this. That wasn't something until kind of really recently and I sort of fell into it um, a little bit out of necessity, which I think a lot of uh, obviously comedians are constantly writing their own work, um, unless they're the fat Jewish. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think it came out of necessity, but not even from a not even from a career point of view in terms of being in terms of being tactical. I think it came out of just there was something within me that went, I've got to just be storytelling, and whether that's performing or whether that's telling jokes or whether that's actually writing content, I just need to get it out to me. But I don't remember one specific example. So when did you start? Uh, when did you start kind of going down the comedy rabbit hole? The comedy rabbit hole uh, came out of when I'd finished studying in London. So I studied in London for three years. I started there in two thousand and eight, and the comedy rabbit hole came out of I had decided not long after I'd finished my second degree in London that I wanted to have a crack at telling jokes. And I'd already I'd, I'd already been exposed to the world of comedy but never in that club sense. So I had a friend who was a comedy producer and she still is and it, um, works for a huge arm of comedy producing. Um, and there was a time she would take me to loads of stuff and I was kind of just still in that, that acting realm and kind of went, oh, I would never have the guts to stand up and tell a joke. Like that is just not something I would want to do. And the longer I stayed in London, the more I kind of felt liberated to at least give it a crack. Um, and I've continued to be exposed to comedy and comedians and, um, yeah, I unfortunately for everybody else fancied myself as quite funny um it's not all gold um but um i thought well if i can learn the art of being able to take stories and scenarios and observations and turn them into jokes and tell them to people who never met me then this is potentially going to help my writing potentially also going to help my career um, as a performer and I might actually enjoy it. So I went and did a course. I went and did this really weird three-week, maybe longer, maybe about six-week course in New Cross, which is just outside of London, south-east London, near Greenwich. And it was it's become quite fancy in that area now. It's become quite hipster, I should say. It's a bit more homogenised than it was when I was living there. And it was this dingy kind of theatre space under a house in New Cross next to the train station with all of these people I'd never met before and it was on Sunday mornings and I basically learnt how to tell jokes and it was all going to culminate in this one performance at a club in Greenwich, which is very popular and still houses lots of great comedians called Up the Creek, and we were going to get a five-minute spot. So I signed up to do that and then very nearly didn't go on the first day, and that's quite unlike me, but I was genuinely terrified and I'd also managed to sleep in, which, again, is not like me at all. But clearly something deep within my subconscious was saying, this is a terrible idea. You don't want to be doing this. The animal instincts kicked in. And then I, yeah, and then I turned up and everyone was so weird and different so and so weird that it was normal. Like so, they were so weird that they were just like me and normal. No, they weren't all normal. And then this guy who was running it spent the first 25 minutes of this course telling us how to hold the microphone cable because, of course, 
he believed that no one could laugh at your jokes if they were distracted by the way you were holding the microphone. And I agree, agree to it to some, to some extent. And if you ever watch um, stand-up comics, you'll, you'll notice if they've got a long cable, often they'll wrap the like the if they're left or right-handed they'll they'll wrap a circle like they'll you know as if they were kind of carrying a cable on set you know they'll wrap it so that they've got the the microphone's got a bit of slack and they're not going to trip over it and you know they're they're also very good at making sure they get the microphone stand out of the way quite quickly but I kid you not walking onto stage was what we did for the first four hours of this comedy course and I've never laughed so much at people in my entire life (laughs) I thought fuck if I can't even get past like working out how to hold a microphone and where to move a microphone stand to. And the best part was that his number one solution for what you should do with the microphone cable that, and I should remind you, that people won't be distracted by is to sling it over your shoulder. Like on stage, sling it over your shoulder? Yeah, just had it draped, just had it draped over his shoulder like a pashmina. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the oddest thing I've ever seen because this guy was huge as well and he had this beautiful kind of role of I don't know 30 years of dietary neglect would just kind of like sit just just underneath his t-shirt but his t-shirt wasn't quite long enough to kind of cover that and I thought really you should just be putting the microphone cable over that because that is distracting yeah so that experience is to blame for why I decided to try my hand at stand-up comedy Mm. and that then it quite quickly morphed into sketch when I came back home and um, caught up with an old friend and we decided to have a bash at sketch comedy. Writing comedy or performing comedy, uh, I mm. imagine, could be... Um, I mean, I've, I've written comedy, but I've never really performed it or performed my own writing. Mm. I imagine, you know... it could be up there with one of the most vulnerable and terrifying things one could do, at least when you're beginning. Uh, how did you kind mm. of uh, overcome that fear you said that you had uh, early on about, you know, kind of, I guess, I guess when you're, I guess if you're writing or performing drama, it's like there's, you're, you're not trying to elicit what is one of the most sought after reactions a person can strive for, which is to make people laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you kind of, how did you kind of work through that challenge? Well, I think sometimes you've, there's got to be, you've got to harness sheer confidence. Like you have to have such a degree of belief in the content that you're writing and that it is funny. And it's a it's a funny thing writing comedy because and I I I really don't believe myself to be. I have done stand-up comedy, but I would never refer to myself as a stand-up comedian. But I've written plenty of sketch comedy and I'm happy to kind of claim that I'm a sketch comic. Um but I think the more you do it, the harder it gets in many ways because <laughs> the more you expose yourself to failure, inevitably the more failure you will have, the same way the more you expose yourself to success, the more success you will have. And also comedy is, comedy comes out of a need for people to want to escape and relate all at the same time and it's really and that itself is like in serving everybody is really quite a difficult thing to do. Um, I think with drama, drama people can watch something and be moved or not be moved, but that doesn't necessarily dictate whether it was successful, whether, of course, with, with comedy, everybody is expecting that they will laugh. Um, and what I've learnt the most about comedy was that you just have to be insanely confident about how you deliver it because if there's an essence that you doubt the material, then an audience will tune into that the same way a horse will know if you're scared or not. Um, and I don't know that they necessarily understand that they're, they're doing that or that it's a conscious thing, um, but I definitely believe that they do. 
And also, I just think you you have to listen. Um, yeah. It's quite a quite an energetic experience, I suppose, because you're yeah. you. I guess in a similar way to musicians, you and the audience become almost a single entity in a way. Well, it's a dialogue. Yeah, I think you're actually having a dialogue with the audience, and when they're not, I mean, when they're not like, oh, it's fucking awful. Um, but when they're you know, and having had those experiences of doing solo shows and having having to be able to then take that material into a room and, you know, you might only do five or six minutes of that material and the room is really big and they're raucous and they're loud, your energy's got to match that. And then you end up playing to four people on a Sunday night at 5.30 and then and you've, re- you've got to listen to them. You've got to bring that right down as well. So it is, in many ways, it is there's a musicality to it. It is like playing jazz. You, you don't want to just come out with some ridiculous horn line when when the piano is <laughs> clearly got its like soft pedal on because there's a sensitivity i think in comedy the audience know and the audience are aware that what they think and the way they react should matter um and if you just kind of steamroll over them or you don't meet them if you're kind of playing underneath their energy and they they want a particular type of energy then you just got to be really in tune and I think that that just comes with time and practice and also you also just have to hope that the person has come to see the right comedian <laughs> um it's you know it's so subjective what even food you know it's as subjective as that it's just like are you a beer man good well I'm not going to give you a rosé like yeah. <laughs> um it's a lot of pressure on comics to appeal to everyone all the time and I just think that that's, that's totally impossible and it's really wonderful when comedians get to a stage where they have found their niche and they've found a following who like them before they've even stood on stage. That is, And they have been through so much before they've got to that point. You know, there's comics who have a fan base and who have people who will come and see them open an envelope. And they do. They work so, so hard and they have to work so hard to get to that stage. And I think that, that they're so utterly deserving of all the success that comes of that. I suppose it's about uh, finding your voice and being, to, mm. to sound a little bit, you know, um, new agey, it's about, uh, I guess, being true to that voice and being mm. uh, c- committing to that and not wanting to kind of appease everyone, but kind of understanding that everyone is unique, but by virtue of the by virtue of that kind of tautology, in a way, no one yeah. is unique. So there's going to be people who connect with what your voice is because they have a similar yeah. experience to you of life, and really kind of trusting that you know that your voice is relevant and that you don't need to appeal to everyone. Exactly, exactly right. And I think within that, finding that voice, you know, those comics who are 19 and 20 and have that voice at that age, that is astounding. I can't, I mean, I don't know whether I actually, and I probably only spent the better part of like three or four years doing stand-up. I don't think that I ever found a voice in that time, but I think I told some decent jokes. So, and I think people enjoyed them, but I, you know, I'm, even at 33, I'm still looking for that. And, yeah, it's a huge, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by anyone who can kind of find that and settle into that. And it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that those, that those individuals can then therefore appeal to a huge number of people. But, yeah, you, you laugh at the things that you relate to and you laugh at the things that therefore... It can surprise you and surprise your way of thinking and you absolutely look for a sense of reflection in, in their stand-up comic. Otherwise, you kind of aren't following the joke, I guess. Mm. So that, that uh, sketch comedy duo that you were mentioning before was Girls mm. Uninterrupted. Yeah. What was the kind of uh, – what was the inception of that and how was the, kind, how was the trajectory – of that 
uh, experience for you kind of leading into you becoming, you know, someone who was, who is now writing, um, mm. you know, for people like the ABC and, and, um, and with late night films. Oh, okay. So Girls on Interrupter came about because um, my partner Louise and I, we'd, we'd actually been at uni together. She was the year below me at the Uni of Ballarat and we'd lived together one year in a, in a house in Nolan Street, which is next to the, the shunting yard, the train station. Um, What's a shunting yard? A shunting yard. So that's when the trains pull in and they uh, hook on the cargo. So it, it was just a constant soundtrack of big steel boxes getting shunted onto trains and then taken off into regional Victoria. Mm. Um, I quite liked it. I don't know why, but I find cargo kind of romantic. <laughs> I digress. Um, Do you often fantasise about packing a knapsack and slinging it over your shoulder? No, and... I don't know why. I just, I just find the mass movement of goods to be quite attractive. I don't, I do not know why. But I just I love seeing that all of those big kind of cargo ship boxes stacked on each other down by down in Footscray. I just look at it and go, that is remarkable. That is sexy. Um, it, that is a sexy, sexy thing. I just I don't know. It's very odd. I think it must be a previous life thing. I must have worked on the docks, or maybe I'm yet to. Um, <laughs> but we yeah. So we. I approached Louise. We'd bumped into each other in Edinburgh. I was still living overseas. She was travelling the world. I'd said that I'd just started doing stand-up comedy. She said the same. I said, let's do a show. And I said it very naively because as most comics will tell you, doing a full hour or even a half hour of comedy is not something you do within the first kind of year of being a stand-up because it takes a really long time to work up material and um, – basically determine that you're worth listening to for 30 minutes at, at minimum. You know, most comics really take about four or five years on the circuit before they go, I'm ready for a solo show. Not this jerk. This jerk was like, yeah, hell yeah. I got this. a six-week course. I can hold a microphone. I can sling a cable over my shoulder. I've got this. So I decided to come back to Melbourne for a couple of months while I was still sort of living overseas and we decided to do the festival show. We'd nabbed ourselves an amazing time slot and an amazing room for the festival and we started working. We both went, great, let's do half an hour each. And then Louise said to me, why don't we do some sketch because I like running sketch. You're, we both can do characters. It's kind of we've both been had a history of playing comedy characters. Why don't we do it? And we started to work together and it turned out that we had really good chemistry. And what the show ended up being was about, 10 or 12 minutes each of stand-up, so a bit more realistic and a bit more achievable. And then the rest of the show was us doing sketches. And we'd come up, we'd definitely come up with a dynamic between us. And the feedback was that people really enjoyed the show and what they loved was seeing us working together. And that's kind of how it was born. That's when we went, oh, we should keep doing this and we should keep working together. And the show made money, which is absolutely unheard of. So we went, let's just take this money and make sure we do a show again later in the year for Fringe or do a show next year. And then that's kind of what happened. And then it just sort of rolled into us um, doing purely sketch shows, although we did sort of have a Lou and Nick personality and persona um, and dynamic that would appear in the shows. And sort of from that we decided to look at finding the opportunity to write other stuff that wasn't necessarily sketch. But the kind of the three years passed really quickly and in the final year of um, our shows as a duo, I got cast in Kinney, which was the sketch show for the Seven Network. And we did we shot that just before, with the, the two weeks before we went into the final show together. So it felt a little bit like... The universe was kind of conspiring to go. Oh, you should keep doing this. Like, mm. We're going to serve this, um, and that was like my first TV gig since being a kid. So that was in itself like a big deal. I had a couple of ads, and I was 
doing reasonably well in the world of commercials, but um, you know, you need something a bit more than just twelve hours on a I don't know, selling a car or whatever it is. <laughs> so you did that. You did that big um, target campaign. Yes. Yes. Which I, I suppose did. was a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Oh, I can really only speak positively of it because I, I, feel, I feel like the director really took a gamble on me because I was an absolute unknown. Um, I'd had, I think Lou and I had only been doing comedy for a year, but it's funny because it was the comedy that probably tipped me over the edge in terms of getting the gig and it was a really great gig. It was very lucrative and it really wasn't that demanding on me um, as far as like from a professional point of view. Nobody really recognised me, which kind of ideal. And it was pretty much off screens within six months, which again was ideal. And I know it sounds like a weird thing to be saying that's ideal for anybody, for people who don't know the world of commercials and as a performer. But the, the idea is really you don't want to become overexposed or saturated in the market because once you've done one ad and if people only associate you to one particular brand, it becomes difficult to therefore then be associated with other brands. And at the end of the day, commercials pay bills. Very well. So Very well. So you kind of want as many as you can get. So from a... And, and again, from just another sheer confidence boosting experience, kind of went whole like this. This company is putting all of their eggs on me to reboot their market. Really, I mean, I didn't do it solely, but there was obviously a lot of people in, in a lot of high-paying uh, advertising jobs who were kind of coming up with the content. But I felt very honoured that they'd decided that I was going to be the face of it and for the most part it was really fun and stupidly glamorous when you're having like costumes made for you and you know people discussing at great length how long your hair should be and (laughs) all like it's nuts it's nuts but it and because I was it was effectively like I was the hero I was I was doing most of the ads by myself you know I felt like I felt yeah, it was great. It was so good for my ego. And do you know what it was? It was also one of the best, like it was my first experience being back on set as an adult and yet here I was doing 17-hour days and having to hold up energy for that whole time and I, it was such a good um, apprenticeship in terms of, the energy that it takes and the commitment and the focus and the three directors that you have to listen to and fundamentally remembering that if everybody is standing there staring at you and this is crew, craft services, everyone, the minute your energy drops, everybody else in the room gets exhausted. And and that and having that real sense of team was so great and so fun. Um, and feeling like, and I did feel like I was working as part of a team. So, um, yeah, I have I have only very positive things to say about the experience because it really kind of just knocked me up a peg um, in terms of what I could do and where things were going to go. And as an actor, I know there are plenty of performers who aren't interested in doing commercials and um, and being involved in that world, but when you get to have the opportunity to head up a campaign and work that hard, it's it's really like going to school. <laughs> like you just learn so much. Mm. So, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily feel like. I mean, if it had gone on for a couple of years, I think I'd feel a bit different about it. I think that it would be harder to be establishing myself beyond that brand. Um, but I think I I lucked out. And I guess, like you say, it's kind of, in a way, training for, well, it's, you know, I think every time you step on set, it's training in a sense, because you're always learning and and refining and expanding your knowledge, uh, whether it's for, you know, for future performance work or for future writing work, understanding, you know, the kind of logistics and mechanisms of how things run on set, 
One of the things mm. that you said then that kind of stood out to me was the importance of it feeling like a really uh, solid team and the yeah. positive Im- influence and impact that that can have. Yeah. Is that yeah. Some- I mean, that's, I think, why I love working in film and TV more so than, say, theatre or comedy because com- comedy is just you. Comedy is, if you are a stand-up, it is absolutely just you. Yes, you have a manager and there are producers and I'm, there are plenty of people who might listen and they say, no, you're being incredibly naive. But at the end of the day, it's potentially you on the road in Kubapedi establishing your career, writing jokes. You cannot make film and television without a team. It is absolutely a team effort. And, you know, I'm... That's, I guess, what I'm enjoying the most, even though I've, again, talked about being alone with writing, but knowing that if we're fortunate enough to go into production later this year, how many teammates and family members will, and I mean as in the the film and TV family, will come on board in order to realise the world of what you're creating. Um. And that's just maybe it. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe it stems back to being an only child and not having anyone to play with at Wet and Wild. So I never went. But it's just that total desire to have other people involved and to share that experience because I think that is pretty magic. And just oh, you know, I'm having a really positive experience currently working with a really great story producer, and I've never had this experience from a. I suppose I'm. I'm you know, I've had plenty of mentors in my life, but never one who's been working in a sort of professional, no one that I've ever paid, I guess, to mentor, um, certainly not in the world of script writing. And just feeling like the creation of this world and the creation of these stories is absolutely a team effort and just sitting there and problem-solving things together and not feeling alone in that that sense of, if I don't come up with a solution to this, then it's going to be terrible or it's just going to take me three more weeks. But actually going, I need help and having that um, sense of teamwork really from just the genesis of what it is that we're working on. Mm. You must experience that that as well, though. That must keep you going back to what you do. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think most of, I don't know, you don't, you can't really, or nor would you want to, kind of exist autonomously. I think, I think a lot of the creative process, particularly if you are a writer, as you said early on, can be you kind of sitting alone with the voices in your head. And I think that one of the things I discussed with uh, on an on an episode not long ago with um, with Luke McKenzie was about how uh, in the world of show business, uh, the writer is really the pure pure artist every everything else is kind of interpretive uh and i think beyond that yeah you are kind of looking for that shared experience of you know like a team sport you are you know there's the Mm. captain and there's the the full forward and and there's the fullback and there's the ruckman and you know everyone's doing their job towards this kind of common goal uh or this common kind of thread of making mm. hopefully what will be uh, a kind of magical product, and I think we do it. Mm. I think we do it with the hope that um, you know we're going to have that almost transcendent experience of creating something that yeah. is so much bit bigger and better than the sum of its parts. Absolutely, absolutely. So you uh, like you know has, has been a kind of common point through this uh, have been working with late night films for the past few years I think I remember the first short film that you uh, I think it was the first short film that you collaborated with yeah you worked on it yeah which I uh, had a very small very small role in Uh, and I and I I remember your um, how excited you were to kind of see something that you'd written coming to life on on screen um, which is, you know, something yeah. that I always kind of relish when I 
write something. But uh, as a kind of side point on that, uh, on that production, you co-wrote it with um with Nick Collar, who had been who has been on this show. And if yes. we kind of fast forward a few years, um, you guys got married. Yes, I am also Nick Collar. Mm. Yeah, well, it's yeah, a bit like predestination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I guess, yeah, so that was the first, that was our first project t- together. We'd worked on it, well, certainly that we'd produced. Uh, about six months before, I think, we'd, we'd, Nick had approached me to work on a concept for an SBS uh, sort of comedy runway um, which, believe it or not, was actually the genesis of this now kids project. So when I say we've been working on it a year, we've actually been working on it maybe three and a half years, but it's come a very long way. I think the only thing that it shares is its title, which is about to change now anyway. But, yeah, Palindromes was the first short that I had written and we'd co-written it together and it really was the first kind of entire narrative short that I'd worked on before because I should have added Lou and I used to make loads of video content for our shows so we'd always have video content in our shows and I would we would effectively do it ourselves I would we'd write shoot and I would cut it all and I possess very 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 limited editing skills but enough that you know like enough that people could kind of just understand what was going on <laughs> I could do a swipe and but so for palindromes really was the first time that someone had taken a script that I'd written and gone when we'll take it from here and so that was a, a super exciting experience because I'd never had anything that I hadn't ha- kind of had control over from start to finish and dare I say not even it wasn't even the relinquishing control it was just that somebody else was going to come along and make it happen and that was magic. I think at that point I went, oh, you mean I don't have to do everything? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, and, you know, and then, and it really was the first experience where I had where the a design team came in and went, oh, well, we could do this and this because the script says this. And I'm like, does it? I didn't even see that. But I guess, yes, sure. <laughs> you know, and having people interpret parts of the story and being able to realise it was was magic I'd never had even though I'd had the experience of working as a child actor and I had you know seen my mum and dad work in tv I'd never really firsthand gone oh I can watch something I've made be realized and I think obviously at that point I must have just become addicted and really it was Nick who kind of said you should keep doing this because you're good at it and we'd like to keep working with you and Really, more or less, between now and then, all every almost everything I've written has been exclusively sort of for late night. But um, I know that that's definitely um, on that will change. Not that I don't enjoy working with them. Obviously, I do. They're magic, and if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I am now. But um, yeah, it certainly was the first time that I went. Oh, I'm gonna keep enjoying myself with this story business. So. Off air, you said that, you know, you, you were talking about how your year has been quite busy, which I, I think I said at the start yeah. of the the episode, uh, and how we kind of, you know, how that was kind of a marker for if things are good a or not. A successful year. Yeah, a yeah. successful year. And we kind of had a, a pseudo-philosophical kind of uh, back and forth <laughs> about that. But it is an interesting kind of point, you know, with kind of this journey and trajectory in mind, how do you define success or failure, you know, either in the world of comedy or, you know, just as a creative or, you know, I mean, the, the simple fact that you that you and Nick have managed to, you know, create such a beautiful relationship um, born in an industry mm. that is fraught with kind of difficulty <laughs> in that kind of space. All of that kind of leading into how do you define, you know, what 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 is success for you? What how will you know, or how do you feel successful? I feel like success is getting things done without experiencing a sense of effort. I feel like it is a feeling of 
effortless productivity and achievement. Um, that is how I define a successful day, a successful morning, a successful year, is that kind of um, uh, sense of it, I don't know, just kind of, ex- of moving through it with not a huge amount of consciousness. I think that's what it is. I think I'm still learning, but I also think that that's where I sit now, how I define success is it kind of happening without you having to experience this, the feeling of effort. I think things can be hard and I think you can work hard. But I think if you're enjoying the work and the work is easy in terms of um, the flow of it and your time that you're engaged with it, um, then that is success. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I shall aspire to that i've got lots of friends at the moment doing um kind of going what's your what's your what's your motto for um 2017 i was like oh is that something we need to have (laughs) and um and one of them is like i'm going to be brave this is the year of me being brave i'm like okay cool yeah definitely that's great and i had another one who was i'm going to I'm going to pursue my worth. And I was like, well, that's good. I don't know entirely what that means, but as long as it means something to you. And mine was surprise myself. Um, and I don't, not, not just kind of scaring myself in the mirror, but just, I don't know, finding opportunities to go, oh, was that me? Did I do that? That's amazing. Like mm. just looking back in retrospect going, I never would have thought that would have happened. <laughs> So maybe it was a bit of a cop out, but I'm I'm sticking with it. Do you have one? Have you have you got one? Oh, uh, I suppose I suppose to. I don't want you to answer under pressure though, because it it, it it took me a while. No, but I think I think it is something that I'm that I am thinking about a lot, in terms of my own growth, and I think it's a good thing to kind of articulate, I guess to take more risks maybe maybe it is that kind of i mean i think all the things that we're saying are similar you know whether it's to be brave or to surprise oneself or to live on the edge it's all about a continued kind of evolution isn't it about doing things that make you a little bit more uncomfortable for the kind of bigger picture of you know what you want to achieve in your life absolutely you know, I think it's important that we kind of are obviously striving to grow all of, you know, all at, at all times. But I think, yeah, I, I think the idea of putting a, putting pressure on one particular year to perform better than others is, is kind of ridiculous because there's also a lot of stuff in life that is entirely, completely out of your control. Mm, and unpredictable. Um, totally unpredictable and you know i think as long as we can shake off the sense that we're entitled to something um because we're not (laughs) nobody owes us anything you know and enjoy the enjoy the control i suppose that we we do have Mm. and that is at least to shape some sense of the path well i think the great kind of um absurdity of life is that we're constantly trying to create frameworks to have some semblance of control but really there's there is no control and i think i think um i think it is like you say just about enjoying those moments where we do feel like we know what's going on yeah yeah well that was a fun uh, kind of splash around in the in the deep <laughs> end of the pool um and we did somehow Indeed. manage to tie a little bow into that. I think we started talking about the pressure on 2017 and we've ended talking about... Yeah, we did. It came, we did. It came full oh, circle. Did. It was a deep, it was a deep callback. It was really deep. It was. Um, I end every, every conversation with the same questions and that question I know. is... And I was thinking about this today. Oh. What makes Go. you silly?
trampolines. <laughs> Mini tramps? No, all shapes and sizes. You're right. I think it's the bounce. It's that moment when you aren't on the ground and you aren't quite that, – that moment of elevation where you are just – surrendering to gravity you are inevitably going to fall but that kind of like sense of inertia that you have when you bounce i think it might make me silly <laughs> that's enough to make anyone silly is that is especially that, if you get double I feel like this is a bit like family feud because i'm a bit like if survey says like out of a hundred you surveyed 100 people and how many of those people said oh it's uh, trampolines Trampolines make me silly. Actually, you're the first one to say trampolines. Shit. Fuck. I think that's good. We won't be able to... Yeah, it's trampolines. I mean, there's, mm. there's nothing... I don't, and you know, I don't engage with them enough. We could do a plug for Bounce, but since they're not paying me, fuck okay. it. No. Yeah, fuck But it is a fun place to go. Fuck them. It is a really fun place to go. I went quite recently, hence why I'm clearly still in my mind. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nick. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute delight. It has been an absolute delight. And now I get to go and um, pick up my husband who's waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs>